You're listening to a resource from Alpine Bible Church. Alpine Bible Church exists to know Christ Jesus together and to make Him known. We are located in Sugar Creek, Ohio. For more information, visit our website at alpinebible.org. May Jesus be glorified in your life. Good morning, church. On the drive-in this morning, we're going to begin in prayer here in a minute. On the drive-in this morning, Nora asked me, Daddy, what happens if we don't pray? I said, well, God still works, but he wants us to pray. He wants us to call on him. And she said, you mean we'll shrink? (laughs) She said, Dad, we sung it. We sing it all the time at church. And then I didn't have the heart to tell her that she's not literally going to shrink, but I'd rather her keep that in her mind. (laughs) But we need to pray. We need to ask the Lord to speak. We've sung it. We've read a bit of it. We're going to read it again. But we need to pray. We need to ask the Lord to work. We need to ask the Lord to work in your life today, perhaps. Ask Him to speak to you. Ask Him to move you. Ask Him to correct you, convict you. The Word does all this, and He does it through by His Spirit, but we need to ask Him. So let's ask Him together. Would you pray with me? Father, it's good to be in Your presence with Your people here gathered underneath Your Word, underneath its authority, its power, its its ability to reach us right where we're at. So, Lord, I pray this morning that your Spirit would bring it to bear on us. I pray that you would do great things in us for your sake and your glory so that we would say what a great God we have, what a great God there is. Lord, I pray that we would as we're about to read, be able to express the kind of joy and praise and worship for you every time we think about you, every time we open your word, every time our minds are ready to just uh, have a moment to think. Lord, I pray that we would be more and more in awe of you, and may that be true this morning. May we be in awe of who you are and what you've done. Lord, we love you and We're dependent on you this morning and ask, Lord, that you would meet us here in your word. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Pastor read a couple of verses here. I'm going to just start in verse 3 of Ephesians 1, if you're not yet there, and just read down through verse 8. That's where we're going to be this week. Lord willing, we'll finish out... um, Uh, the section of down through verse 14. My goal is to get to verse 8 today. We'll see where I get. Ephesians 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, 
even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose or the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. This is God's word. This is, this section, if you're familiar with the book of Ephesians, verses 3 through 14, is just rich. There's just so much here. And um, I cannot... Uh, in two weeks even, really do it justice. But in our series that we've been walking through in Christ, I would be remiss to not go to this text to finish out. We've talked about um, dying with Christ. We've talked about dying to the law, as Paul talks about in Galatians 2, that uh, through faith in Jesus Christ, through trust in him, where he ha- we can say along with Paul that we've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. In the life we live in the flesh, we now live by faith. We've heard a lot about faith this morning, haven't we? And Paul talks about dying to the law, that we don't need to live in such a way that the law or obedience to God is the means by which we're declared righteous. We're declared righteous uh, in God's eyes through faith in Christ and that alone, faith alone in Christ alone. We also found out in Romans 6 that we're dead to sin. Sin no longer has dominion over us. We're not to let sin reign over us anymore. Christ is our Lord and King, not sin. We're dead to death in that we can stare, even as Joel mentioned, we can stare death in the face as Christians and not be afraid because to die is gain. Last week we looked at being alive in Christ, Colossians 2. We're called to, as we've been raised with him through faith in Christ, we're called to walk in him, to live in him, to live according to who he is, to walk as he walked, to walk in truth, all those things we talked about last week. But there's something else that Paul points us to here that sort of rounds out, I guess, my view of uh, where I felt like the Lord wanted me to go in talking about this whole notion of in Christ. I think I mentioned at one point there's well near 200 times in the New Testament that that little phrase, in Christ, is used. It's immensely important to what it means to be Christians. And the Bible makes that clear. We... uh, celebrate and give thanks to God for our salvation, what the Lord has done in us, in us individually. And we do that often, perhaps, in your own prayer time. As you sing, as you think about what the Lord has done, you're so thankful, I'm sure, of it. If you know the Lord, you're so thankful for what he's done in you. But do you know that the Lord has done something uh, in us so that he's brought us together in such a way that Paul here in this text He's not just giving thanks for his own testimony. He's giving thanks for what God has done in Christ, for all people and all time through Christ. Such that when I look each of you in the eye, if you know the Lord, there's something that we share, that we're in Christ together. That no other thing in the world ever can compare to that. That when I... And with another Christian, when I am here in church with my brothers and sisters in Christ, who, by the way, will be together for eternity, 
as we're promised. There's something that God has done with us in putting us together in Christ. Yes, he has saved you individually. He saved me individually. I pray he saved you individually. You've believed on him, received him as Lord. But there's something that he's done in that he has joined us together in Christ. We're together in the Son. So when the Father looks at Christ, he sees us. And we're all packed together within the love of the Godhead. Well, if you know that I... uh, Spent, have spent some time in the last few years uh, with a guy who's uh, now with the Lord. Um, he, uh, I've joked with somebody that sometimes some of my best friends are dead uh, because I like to read guys who are long uh, ago uh, have died and are now with the Lord. You can still learn wonderful things from what the Lord has done and people have gone before us. If you read Christian biographies, missionary biographies, things that other Christians have written, uh, it encourages your heart. And you get to know someone that you read a lot and you start to feel like, I know this guy. I look forward to seeing this particular man in glory and just giving him a hug. Much more excited to see Jesus, but maybe down the road we'll eventually uh, see each other. But his name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German pastor, spent time in in a particular book he wrote called Life Together. And Bonhoeffer was uh, a pastor during the Nazi uh, government in Germany. The church was overrun with Nazi influence, and so he was a part of this small little uh, offshoot called the Confessing Church in Germany, and he ran an underground seminary um, and uh, essentially pushed against any influence of uh, government and particularly Nazi control of the church. He, he was a pastor. He died a martyr. But his desire in his early life for other believers, for Christian community, was so strong um, that it really, and, and what he was able to experience in times throughout his life, particularly when he ran this underground seminary, which was eventually shut down, and then he was imprisoned, But once he was in prison, he spent the last few years of his life in prison, eventually dying in Flossenburg concentration camp. What he looked back towards and what he wrote about in letters to friends and family and his his fiance was he missed being with other Christians. He missed Christian community. He missed sitting with uh, other believers underneath the word, in prayer, being together, all things that we have free access to all the time, anytime we want. And quite honestly, we don't maybe always take advantage of it. But he missed it. That's what he desired. That's what he longed for the most. He says that at one point, Christian community is grace. It's a gracious anticipation of eternity, he says. Every time we gather as a church, we are eagerly waiting for the day that we will gather around the throne for all eternity and sing the Lord's praises. It's like we're we're, we're, we're practicing We're getting ready because it's what we'll do for all eternity. And it'll be wonderful. We'll never get bored. And you'll actually want to be there all the time. (laughs) And sin won't be between us anymore. Sin won't be between us and the Lord anymore. We'll be clean, washed white. But every time that we gather as as a community, as a church, it's this gracious anticipation, he says, of eternity. We're we're ready. We're longing for it. He says, we belong to one another only through and in Jesus Christ. The thing that we, you and I, share is that Jesus has done the same thing to you and I. Something about that has connected us. 
such that even saints that have long died and are now in the arms of Christ, I have more in relation to that person than I do to my unbelieving neighbor. Because we share something in Christ. I'll stand next to him or her around the throne for all eternity. He said elsewhere, Bonhoeffer did, Christian community is not an ideal. We have to realize it's not something we work to create, but it's something, it's a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. That's what Paul is saying here. God has done something in Christ that we or us, as he often says, get to share in. So yes, we should give thanks to God for our salvation, but understanding that Do you ever just give thanks to God for what he's done? Not just for what I've received, but I'm so thankful that we have a God who's loving and merciful and gracious, who saves. We have a God who saves. Yes, he saved me, and that's wonderful. But I'm so glad that we have a God who saves and has saved you and you and whomever else. You ever look at another person, I'm so glad that the Lord saved you. You see, Paul, oftentimes in Acts, you can read him give his testimony to lots of people, talk about what the Lord has done to him. But here, Paul's not just talk. He could have written to the Ephesian church and said all the wonderful things that God did for him. But he doesn't, does he? He says, who has blessed us, um, us, we, us, we, all throughout this. His focus is on wonderful things that God has done for us. And I think there's something to be learned from that. Verses 3 through 14, if you didn't know, in in the original language in Greek, is one long sentence. Those of you who like grammar or uh, or English teachers, perhaps, or former English teachers, Paul would get a big F in verses 3 through 14 because it's a gigantic run-on sentence with a bunch of dependent clauses, and now you're tuning me out. Dependent clauses, okay. But it's one long sentence. And in the Greek, it's over 200 words. Imagine, sometimes in school you're, you're said, okay, write a 500-word response to this. That's about a good paragraph with lots of sentences. Paul writes a 200-word long sentence. And 10 times in this section, he talks about being in Christ. 10 times. And he has a distinct focus. We'll see this as we go through the rest of the uh, next week and this week. He has a distinct focus on the Godhead. He's talking about the Father. He's talking about the Son. He's talking about the Spirit. Yet he is distinctly Christ-centered. And his whole point really is that we are drawn into this eternal relationship of love and the Godhead. You know God is not lonely before he created us. He's not, he wasn't lonely He didn't create us because he was lonely or needed something to do. He had fellowship and love in and with himself for all eternity. How can we understand that? That there's one God and there's three persons within that Godhead. And for all eternity, he has this fellowship and bond of love between the Father, Son, and the Spirit. So he wasn't lonely. That isn't why he created us. He did it out of his own love. And through Christ, we're drawn into that eternal relationship of love in the Father, Son, and the Spirit. What a wonderful thing. None of us write letters anymore, at least very often. Maybe we, maybe you do. But how do you begin a letter? You get, maybe get right to the point. Paul begins a letter with a 200-word long sentence expressing the grace and the mercy and just the awesomeness of the salvation of God. That's how he begins his letter. Blessed 
be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we, we like to do the little hashtag. Maybe you don't do this, and I might be losing some of you when I say this, but you like to post the little hashtag blessed after we get whatever. I'm blessed. There's a guy that I used to know uh, at the shelter I used to volunteer at once in a while. His name was John. Um, <laughs> and you'd say, John, how you doing today? And he'd go, I'm blessed by the best. I can't think of the word blessed without thinking about John saying that. Uh, he says it even way better than, than that. But we are blessed, aren't we? We're blessed people. But Paul starts out with, blessed be the God and Father of our... God is blessed. Blessing and honor to him, he's saying. And the reason why we find that Paul is expressing blessing to the, to the Father, to God, is that he has blessed... Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. The reason why he's blessed, the reason why Paul begins that way is because he has blessed. Paul is responding with a sense of praise and blessing to God. Blessed be the name of the Lord, right? And he calls the Father both the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Same person, just different titles for the Father. And he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We know this now, the way that God has blessed us in Christ. We can look back to the cross, everything we've been doing these last few weeks. We can look back to the cross and understand that God has blessed us in Christ. But what Paul is saying here is he's stepping back and trying to, from God's perspective, of course, remember, this is inspired by the Spirit. He's trying to, from God's perspective, understand how the Father in all eternity has blessed his people in Christ. And so we look back to it, but he's saying for all eternity, God the Father has blessed his people, us, in Christ. That's the us, that's the we. He's writing, uh, verse 1, to the saints who are in Ephesus. He's writing to the church. He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There is no blessing from God outside of Christ. So when he says, I'm the only way to the Father, that means that. Right? And we sometimes say he's the only way to heaven. That's true, but the verse is he's the only way to the Father. And that's intentional because what he's saying is you're drawn into this same relationship that I have with my Father. So we're not just up in heaven, but we're with the Father, which is even better. He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We receive not one spiritual blessing, but all spiritual blessings, such that we were created, we were redeemed, we were justified, we were forgiven of our sins, we were given life everlasting, and all of that of and through Jesus Christ. So God didn't give you some blessing in Jesus Christ. He didn't give you a couple spiritual blessings. He gave you every spiritual blessing. We talked last week about Christ being enough. This, this is a wonderful representation of that. Christ is enough. You have everything in Christ. One author says, The wealth of Christians consists of spiritual things, not physical ones. God does, as Pastor mentioned after he read this, God does bless us with material things. 
He helps us. He gives us what we need. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. does all kinds of wonderful things. But the wealth of Christians consists in spiritual things. He's given us every spiritual blessing, those things which are eternal. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And this is sort of his introductory phrase because the rest, verses 4 through 14, is him saying, here's all the spiritual blessings. Let me line them out for you. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Heavenly places, or the heavenlies, if you like, is a, is a refrain, a little phrase that he uses, rather really just a word, uh, that he uses throughout the rest of Ephesians several times. If we look down, let's just walk through them just to get a better sense of this idea of heavenly places. If we look down to verse 20 of chapter 1, we find... That Christ, when he raised him, that is the Father, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Christ, after he was raised from the dead, was seated back with the Father in the heavenly places. So that's where Christ is. Yet Christ is here by his Spirit. That's just the, the, the majesty and the power of the Lord. Where's Christ right now? He's at the right hand of the Father, but he's also here with us. Do you believe that this morning? So he's seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places. Go over to chapter 2, verse 6. We find that as, uh, going back to verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, Christ, uh, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus this morning and you have believed to such a degree that you can say with Paul that you've been crucified with Christ, it's no longer you who live, what Paul says is that you are now seated with Christ in the heavenly places right now. We think, (laughs) I mean, this chair is comfortable, but it's not a heavenly uh, place, right? How is that possible? It's a spiritual reality. But right now, you are seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God did that. That's true. That's not just flowery spiritual language. That's true. Chapter 3, verse 10. Paul is talking about the church. Here And he says, uh, verse 10, So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might, be, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In God's sovereign will and his power and majesty, the church, that's us, and all believers throughout the world, the church in Galicro, the church is... The manifold wisdom of the, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. We are a testimony to the spiritual realm. What an amazing thing. That as you gather and you're, you're longing to hear from the Lord and you're maybe feeling like you're just trudging through life and you're just kind of just hanging on, but as you come faithfully, sing praises to your God, hear from his word, you are part of the testimony that the Lord has set up to the spiritual realm. What an amazing thing. That even as you sit now and think about the Lord and as you pray and as you ask him to hear from you, your presence here is a testimony to the spiritual realm. These rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, if you remember from Colossians 2, 
last week. Christ is the head of all rule and authority, Colossians 2.10. But Colossians 2, same, same chapter, and verse 15, the Father disarmed the rulers and authorities in Christ. Remember we talked about Christ hanging on the cross, and through that he disarmed the rulers and authorities. So these are spiritual things, which we'll find out later, later in Ephesians 6, is, uh, are actually against us. Christ is the head of all rule and authority. The Father disarmed the rulers and authorities. And then in Ephesians 6, turn with me. Finish our little interlude here about the heavenly places. Ephesians 6. We find in verse 12. For we do not wrestle wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. But those rulers and authorities have already been disarmed by the Father in Christ. And so as we are seated with, as Christ is seated with uh, at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places, we're seated there with him in, uh, in Christ at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places. The church, meanwhile, as we're there with him, we're this testimony to all of the spiritual realm, even those things which are against God. Christ is the head of all those things. The Father has disarmed all those things through Christ. And our fight, yes, is against those things, but they've been disarmed by the cross. Wonderful things. You could spend a long time just thinking about that. But going back to our text, the Father has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And those are all pretty good things. And so now, from verse 4 on, he's going to list these spiritual blessings. Even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. The Father chose us in Christ before creation for holiness and blamelessness before him in love. We have a time frame that's set up for us here before the foundation of the world, before Genesis 1-1. God, the Father, chose us In him, in Christ. He chose us, one author says, so that our sinful life might be wiped away by his Son, through whom he created, governs, and will restore all things. Because we can't separate the rest of the verse. We can get caught on chose us, and then we just forget the rest of it. Yeah, we have a time frame before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. We find a purpose statement, if you will, for this choosing. But he chose us in him. Who's the him? Christ. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Remember I said God wasn't lonely. Father, Son, and the Spirit eternally in relationship with one another, loving and uh, being connected together in the Godhead. The Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. But this is always the question when we see these choosing words. It's the who, it's how, how do we know, whatever. We have to stay focused on the text. Chose us in him. Us is important here. He's writing to the church. Paul's saying, 
If you believe in Christ, if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, such that you can say, like I said to the Galatian church, you've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. If you believe in Christ, he chose you. That's it. There's no, it's, it's mysterious and how and why, and this is what we're told. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And we often think about these little emotional overtures about, you know, God was thinking about you long before, and we know the story of Jesus and Nathaniel, and we see some of these things laid out for us in Scripture. But before he spoke the universe into existence, he chose you. Before there was such a thing as galaxies and universes, the universe and everything else, he chose you. In him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. All who believe in Christ are chosen. He invites everyone to believe in him. He's not willing that any should perish. It's written that God wants everyone to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That's what God wills. That's what he wants. We know that that's not what happens. People die without Christ all the time and have for centuries. So God doesn't enjoy that. He doesn't enjoy when people decide not to believe in him. Remember the language Paul used in Colossians 2. As you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, it's a conscious decision. We're not robots. We believe in Jesus Christ. You made a choice. There's a day or a time period that you can think back and you can say, that's when I started believing. That's when I hit it. I heard it. I believed. Yes. God chose you. We'd say all the time here, we talk about this verse, 1 John 4.19. We love because he first loved us. Paul preached in Antioch, in Pisidia, in Acts 13. And Luke records for us in Acts 13.48. You can just look at this later if you like. I'll read it to you. Acts 13.48. When the Gentiles heard this, that is, the preaching of the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. How do I know that the Lord chose me? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? He chose you. Chose us in Christ. Think of the timing in relation to this. He chose us in Christ. We know that before the foundation of the world, Christ had not yet come. He wasn't yet born. Lots of things hadn't happened. But again, the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's what he was going to do in Christ for us, through us, to us, before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. That is before the Father in love. Hebrews 12 and verse 14 calls us to strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. If you are not holy, you will not see the Lord. But what the Lord has done in us and through us and for us in Christ is he has made us holy, has set us apart. We've received the righteousness of Christ. He's making us more and more into his image. I mentioned a while ago from 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, the will of God for you is your sanctification. God's will for your life is that you would be holy. That's what he wants. 
We can get caught up in all kinds of other things, but that's what he wants. Because his choosing of you so that you would believe in him is such that you would be holy and blameless before him in love. You can't separate the two. And this is consistent with how the Lord has always done it. Deuteronomy 7, in talking about his choosing of of Israel, Deuteronomy 7 at verse 6, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments to a thousand generations. This is the same thing. He chose Israel for holiness. That's why he gave him the law. He's calling them to be holy. Be holy, therefore, as I am holy. You can't separate this. God choosing his people that they might be holy is not limiting his choice just to holiness. But his choosing his people to be his people is synonymous with their being holy. In other words, to be his is to be holy. He didn't just choose them to be holy. He chose you and you're going to be holy. He continues, verse 5. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. I'm not inclined to say that this is any different than what he's already said in verse 4. And I don't think that what he's doing, the Bible is often repetitive, right? Because it's repetitive in such a way that it tells us something that's emphasized, it's important. And Paul here, this is all a sense of of just really praise to the Lord. And so sometimes when we praise the Lord, we repeat ourselves. So there's no reason for us to think that predestined is any different than chose. He predestined us for adoption. Predestined literally just he destined beforehand us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. We find what he predestined us for is adoption as sons through Jesus Christ or adoption to himself, to the Father. As sons. You all all know what adoption is. You know what it's for. You know all of the intricacies of it. Some of you have gone through it. It's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful picture of the gospel. It's someone who was not, he was on the outside, was not in the family at one point, and has now been brought in and said, you're now my son. You weren't before. You're now my son. Everything that that means to be my son is yours. You're my son. There's no difference. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. He predestined us for adoption as sons. And God the Father is not in the business of unadopting. He did it through Jesus Christ, tells us. 
through is important there. The Father has decreed this decree of salvation. Choosing us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Predestining us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. But Jesus, we find out as he goes on, is the one who secures it. We know that. He came. Came down. Right? Took on flesh. Lived the perfect life. Died a death he didn't deserve. Was raised to new life. All that, Paul could write through Jesus Christ. That's what's in that through. There is a whole life and whole cosmic plan of Jesus coming in that word through. It was the means by which the Father did it. Predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose, I don't like this translation in ESV. It's not purpose. You miss good pleasure. Good pleasure. It's literally the word. Good pleasure. Purpose of his will sounds a little wooden. Good pleasure of his will is what's more reflective of the original. According to the good pleasure of his will. God enjoyed adopting you. He was excited. He was happy. He took pleasure in it. He didn't do it begrudgingly. All right, fine. Here, here's your room. Come on in. Yep. Glad you're here. Wonderful. Great. Stop messing up. No. God took pleasure. He took pleasure. When you can find places where God is taking pleasure in something, remember creation? It was good. When he created us, it was very good. He took pleasure in adopting you. Father loves you. And his pleasure in you continues. Now, these, these verses, these ideas, these concepts, they're deep. They're deep waters, aren't they? We start asking all kinds of whys and hows and what does that mean, right? But the text tells us what the text tells us. And we're safest when we stick to what the text tells us. And we don't make conjecture and all kinds of other things. Martin Luther said, God's will has no why. God is God, not us. We know the text of Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. We need to be about the business of what he has said. Not what we might think he said or he didn't say or how do we fill in the gaps. God saw fit that this was enough for us. Which tells us something about how we're to look at it. There's something here that we should just be giving thanks with, with Paul. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a text that leads us to praise and adoration and thanksgiving to the Lord. And that's where Paul's going. Verse 6. All this to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. All of this was done to incur praise for the Father's glorious grace. You know the, the, the text, perhaps, Psalm 115, verse 1, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. We're in danger sometimes of not giving the Lord enough glory. Not sometimes, all the time. Right? 
when wonderful things happen, when good things happen in our lives, in the providential things of what the Lord's doing in our own lives, in, in everything, in our abilities, in our, in our knowledge, in our families, in our own salvation, in our own growth in Christ. We are always at danger of taking that glory for ourselves, but it's not ours. None of it is. It's all his. Because he's done it all, he's doing it all, and he will continue to do it all. It's all his. In all of this, everything that Paul has said is to the praise of his glorious grace. It's not just grace. It's glorious grace. Grace is unmerited favor. You didn't earn grace. There's no whiteboard in heaven that says Nick gets, you know, a couple extra marks of grace because he has done this. No, Nick, in fact, deserves nothing, but I'm giving him grace. That's the definition of grace. So the praise of his glorious grace. Do you ever just praise him for his glorious grace? Yes, which you have received, but you see him giving to other people. And you pray for him to give to other people. As you pray, are you praying for his grace just to smother people? He uses that kind of language here in a minute. He lavished it upon us. The Father, dare I say, spoils us with grace. Lavished it upon us. It's not just... You know, here's your, like when we try to ration how many Tootsie Rolls Nora eats, you can have one, right? The father, if you imagine Grace's Tootsie Rolls, he brings a truckload and just, here, have them all. When my grandfather, who's in heaven now, learned that my wife liked York peppermint patties, if you knew him, he was not in the business of just getting you like a pack of them. He went to Sam's Club and it was like, you know, you could hear the beep, 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 you know, of the truck backing up. And here's your pallet of York peppermint patties. But that's how the Father gives his grace. And that's why we should praise it. To the praise of his glorious grace, with which... He has blessed us in the beloved. The way that he blessed you is with his grace. Everything that he does for you is grace. It's never earned. We know that already, right? The law is not the means by which we're declared righteous. It's faith. It's all grace. With which he has blessed us in the beloved. That word blessed there is literally be graced. With which he has begraced us. We don't say that. That's not even a word. But he has graced you, begraced you in the beloved. Who's the beloved? Christ. Father says in Matthew 3, verse 17, This is my beloved son, talking about Jesus, with whom I am well pleased. The father is well pleased and loves his son. But what do we already know about the beloved and our position with him? We're in him. So what does that mean about how the father looks at us? We're beloved. We're in his beloved. You can't get any higher than being in Christ. You can't grow from that. Maybe I can earn, you know, what's my next step? How do I move up? (laughs) There is no moving up. You're in Christ. That's as high as you can get with the Father. So when he sees you, he delights in you because of Jesus Christ. Calvin said, Jesus is the mirror in which God beholds us when he wishes to find us acceptable to himself. We say it, God looks at you, he sees Christ. 
But the Father looks at us and he, he does. He sees Christ. We're in Christ. Everything that is Christ, Christ is ours through faith, by grace. Verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Redemption through the blood of Christ. Redemption comes through the blood of Christ. Yes, it's the means by which he redeemed us, but it was also the price. It wasn't merely just, he's not just telling us how it happened. It was the price. It cost the blood of Christ to redeem you. We're going to be soon to Good Friday where we'll gather and we'll think about the cross. We should think about the cross all the time, but we're going to think about the cross especially on Good Friday soon, right? Love that service. We can gather together and just think about the wretched, awful, it's the most violent, terrible thing in all of human history. But that was the price for your redemption. That's what it cost. It's not cheap. That's what the Father did for you. Paul says elsewhere, remember Galatians 2? Gave himself for me. Paul's not, Paul doesn't just always talk about what these wonderful things that God has done for everybody else. He often is led to say, he gave himself for me. Just like we are. In him we have. We have. We have. You have it. You have it right now. If you're in Christ, if you have faith in him, you have it. You don't need to earn it. You don't need to get it. You're not waiting for it. You have it. Redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. Every single thing that you've ever done that has consistently, and you're almost, you're almost faithful to being unfaithful. God is faithful to forgive that. In Christ. Only in Christ. According to... How can I speak like that? According to the riches of his grace. We have a rich father. A wealthy father. And he reaches down into the stores of his grace and gives and gives and gives and gives. But far be it from us to separate that from holiness, right? We're still called to please him. We're still called to live holy lives. We're called to be holy. Grace is not a free pass to just be a knucklehead. The sin, we've already said that Christ is not a servant of sin, remember? He didn't justify us in order that we may sin. No, but he is gracious. He does give grace upon grace. Verse 8, which he lavished on us, that is his grace. He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Wisdom and insight there is connected to his grace and how he lavished it it to us or on us. The Father did it wisely and with careful thought. He's not reckless. But he carefully thought through what it meant to give you grace. Did it wisely with insight. So we can never say, well, God, did you, did, you, did you mean to do that? Yes, I deliberately meant to do that. And that, and that, and that. Bonhoeffer said, we thank God for what God has done for us. We thank God for giving us other Christians 
who live by God's call, live by his forgiveness and his promise. We do not complain about what God does not give us. Rather, we are thankful for what God does give us daily, even as Joel mentioned, sense of daily bread. But I wonder how much our thanksgiving and our praise and our worship sounds like this. And you might say, well, I don't know that it ever does. Well, you know what? You can come to this text and read through it and make it your prayer. Make it your prayer to God. Blessing the Father for what he has done. Sometimes we can, you know, I I think about the way we, just yesterday morning, the men gathered for prayer. And we talked a little bit about praying big prayers. And it might seem like just this huge general prayer to come to the Lord in prayer and say, God, thank you for all that you've done in Christ. Thank you for saving your people. Thank you for giving your son. And, and maybe even working really hard not to just make it about you. Thank you, Lord, that you're the kind of God who saves, that you've done this. That the people in Galicra, that the people in Calcutta, the people in Bangladesh, the people in... Wait, these are easy for us because we know people that are there are going to be there. That all peoples for all times, until Christ returns, God, you, you've done this in your son. Thank you. Blessed be your name. You, I, I can't understand it. And there's a sense in which you come to a certain place with all this and I, I, I'm in awe. God, of what you've done. And how dare I try to, try to lay it all out and explain it all out like I know. I am just a humble, finite creature. I see what you've said, and I am in awe of what you've done. We need more of that in our worship. We need more times of just awe before the Lord because we lose transcendence so much in our culture. Everything deadens us and everything desensitizes us and nothing surprises us and nothing is amazing anymore. But you know children, when they see things that are just, they're pretty cool for us. They're amazed. It's the most amazing thing they've ever seen. And we need to gain back some of that as God's children and be in awe of our Father who loves us so much and he's wealthy with grace and he does wonderful, gracious things all the time. We need to, we need to be more just taken back by the Lord. You remember in Job, Satan's whole test there, I walked through it in Focus Hour recently, but Satan's whole test was really of God, not so much of Job. Because Satan's view of the worship of men and women was that God is only worth worshiping because of what he does for them. So his whole test was, let me take away everything from Job, and he'll curse you. I know he will. Of course, Job doesn't, does he? Satan's whole view is that God, you're only worth worshiping because you do all this stuff for them. The test of God in and through Job's life is that the display is the display that God is worth worshiping just for the sake of who he is. Do you ever just, when you're singing, do you ever just sing because God's so great? Never mind about what he's done for me. He's so amazing. Yes, he's done wonderful things. Praise God for me. But, he's, but just, just God in himself, he's amazing. That he made himself known, that I know him, that we're even here talking about him this morning. That was his grace. 
And we, we thank God for our Bibles and all 15 of them we have on our shelves. But this is his grace that he made himself known. He didn't have to. He wasn't under compulsion to do that. We find as well this sense of God's choosing. It's meant to empower holiness. How dare we think that salvation is just a means of fire insurance, just waiting around here till the Lord comes and it's all grace. No, God is purposeful that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Our lives should be, yes, praising the Lord. But you know what? That's the means by which we're going to be led more and more to holiness. As we're in awe of God and as we just delight ourselves like crazy in the Lord, that is the means by which he will use to bring us more and more to holiness. Because our eyes are fixed on him and how great he is and how marvelous he is and how gracious he is, how mighty he is, how powerful he is. And we're going to pray different. We're going to live different. We're going to think different. We're going to talk different. We're going to be in the word different. We're going to serve different. We're going to have courage to be able to share more because I'm so delighted in him, I want to tell you about him. I'm not doing it out of duty or because someone told me to, because I ought to, but because I want to, because he's great, he's gracious. Let me tell you about him. Our delight in the Lord, like Paul here is expressing in this, leads us to a place of growth in the Lord. You want to know how to grow in Christ, how to grow in him? Delight yourself in the Lord, like Paul Pray these kinds of prayers. And if you don't yet, ask God to help you. Dig into these kinds of texts and just let them be your prayers and let God shape you as you're praying these prayers. Because he will. It's what he does. If you don't know the Lord today, today's the day that, you know what? I think I need to deal with the Lord today. I think I need to believe. I'm feeling this sense of conviction. I'm feeling this sense of Maybe this is true. Maybe this is right. Maybe these people are, aren't crazy. Maybe this is actually true. When you put your faith and trust in Christ, you can know, you can have assurance, God loves you. You want to have assurance of, how do I know this is real? How do I know my faith is real? How do I know I'm really in Christ? Look to Christ. Look to what he's done. Look to what he's done for you. Look to what the Father's done for you in Christ. The assurance of your faith is in Christ, not in yourself. It's in Christ. Look to him. He chose you. (laughs) As you believe in Christ, you can say, that's my father loves me. He has adopted me. He's done it out of his pleasure. He loves me. That's your assurance. Sin will mar that. If you're in sin... Sin will cause you to, to be confused about that. God does not give confusion. He's not, it, there's never a point where, I, am I an adopted by the Father or not? There's never a time when, well, I'm back, I'm in the Father's house and I don't know that I'm his or not. No, our sin does that to us and it blinds us and it causes us to miss what's right in front of us. Believe what's true, and this is true, that the Lord loves you, he died for you, and he's calling to you. Whether you know him or not today, he's calling to you to go deeper with him. Maybe today is your day to receive him as Lord. Maybe today is your day to just take another step farther out into the ocean of who he is and his grace and his beauty. Whatever, wherever that is for you today, I pray that you do that.
That's what he's calling. We have to respond, friends. We have to respond to the Lord's word. A non-response is a response. <laughs> 